Good morning. I've had about 50 comments on me wearing a uh, coat and tie. And I told someone earlier, um, it's, it's probably not a good sign for me to wear a coat and tie because either I'm preaching to you or I'm coming to your funeral. One of the two. So that was supposed to be funnier than that. But, uh, before we... Um, before we get started, let's go before the Lord in prayer, because He is the reason we're here. He is the only power that we have. He's the He's the game changer for us. So let's invite Him, and even do it corporately, but also personally. Invite God to be present with you, to do His good work with you this morning. Father, as we think about what you have done for us, it does give us 10,000 reasons to praise your name. That you have taken children of wrath who justly deserve to be exiled from you, and yet you've brought us into fellowship with you and made us your children. We can't comprehend that. Father, we are broken. We continually wander from you. Our flesh is strong. In one moment we're praising you, and the next moment we're following after the desires of our heart. Forgive us, O oh God. We welcome your spirit to be present with us this morning. You are our hope, our only hope. You're our rock. You're the one only worthy of praise. So we come before you today. today. We welcome you. We praise your name. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last uh, few... Am I really loud? I don't know. Over the last um, couple of weeks, uh, Kevin has come and, and really in his last couple of sermons have, has said, here's the gospel and here's what, it's, here's what change it makes. So it's, it's not only that the gospel draws us into fellowship with God and, and where God cleanses us, forgives us, and makes us righteous. But the result of that changes us so that it changes our behavior, so that it changes our, our response to Him as we go before Him, and it changes our response to others. And it can be summarized in 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. When Paul tells us, for the love of Christ controls us, the NAS says, and the love of Christ compels us. So when you think about being compelled, I think about someone moving me. I'm, I can't resist. I'm compelled to do something out of a force that's greater than my resistance. And so he said here, for the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, his love for us demonstrated in his dying, in his living a righteous life, fulfilling the law, and then sacrificing himself on our behalf so that we are now cleansed and made right before God. That's the love of Christ. So what is the result of that love? And he says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, meaning Jesus. Therefore, all have died. So our old life is now dead. Because of the, because of the death of his son... He has given us new life. Our old life is dead. And he died for all that those who live, listen to this, 
He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for for their sake died and was raised. That's the gospel. And that's the effect of the gospel. As we're gripped by this gospel of grace, and it controls and compels us, our natural response is to no longer live for myself, but for him who gave this great gift to us through the power of the Spirit. Now, we struggle with this, right? We continue to struggle. Because it's not, I, I don't like laying my life down. That's hard. And yet the natural response is I grasp the gospel. I'm compelled to begin doing this. And as we talk today about what drives our fellowship, we say as a, as a church that we are committed. We are a community of grace-centered Christ followers. We're a community. We weren't, but because of the blood of Christ, we are now come into a community of, of faith, into a new kingdom, a new citizenship. So we are a community of grace-centered Christ followers who are committed to reaching the least and the lost of the world for Christ. This gospel that we talk about, that Kevin has talked about over the last couple of weeks, is what drives that vision. That's what drives us. It's not like we come up with this great, oh, that sounds pretty cool. That sounds catchy. No, it's driven by the gospel. It's driven by this gospel of grace that we talk about. We can do nothing else live in community. We can do nothing else but follow him. We can do nothing else but reach the least and the lost of the world for him because of this gospel. And so as we, I want us to talk about what that means because that's our vision. Now what is a vision? What is a vision? What does that mean? What's the purpose of this vision of ours? You know, a vision tells every member, me and you included, what we are seeking to accomplish For Christ and his kingdom. That's what this vision does. It gives us an aim that's driven by the gospel, driven by the word of God, driven by his heart, that we are now to to be a community and to be um, grace-centered, gospel-centered, and that we are seeking to reach the least and the loss of the world to Christ. That's our vision. That's what we're trusting God to accomplish. But it's not just that. It's got to be God-sized. When we talk, I mean, think about it. Grace... Fellowship, we've got probably 85 folks here today. The gall that we actually think we could impact the world, we actually put to reach the least and the lost, not just of Clanton, but we want to reach the least and the lost of the world for Christ. That's pretty, that's pretty ambitious. And yet, the purpose of the vision is that it would be God-sized. Think about this. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and guess what? The ends of the world. These guys had never been more than 50, 60 miles away from their hometown. And yet, Christ is calling them to change the world because of this gospel that's radically changed their life. And guess what happened? We're thousands and thousands of miles from Jerusalem. 
Thomas went to India. Peter went to Rome. Paul later goes to Spain, probably. And so he is calling us to a vision much greater than what we can accomplish. And guess what? He's doing it. That vision is active. That vision is not passive. The gospel is not passive. It is not inactive, but it's active and intentional. Guess what? This week, Rusty Milton is in Cambodia. Seeking to see how their church and and Christ church can impact another country. He came out of this church, both as a student and as a pastor. Jake McCall is in wherever. Orange, wherever that is. California, come on. The ends of the world. But God is using Jake to impact the world for his kingdom. Think about Lauren Gray. Then in Nepal. God raised up uh, my nephew who, who indirectly came to Christ in part because of the ministry of this church. Aaron is looking to change his major to, go, to be able to be more, um, more effective going to the uttermost parts of the world. Starts in Clanton, ends in the world. There's a reason for that. Because it's gospel. It's not something that we just think about. You go, well, that sounds pretty cool. No, it's driven by the heart of God. This gospel changes everything. It defines the transformation that we're working to accomplish in and through us. And we'll talk about that as how that fleshes itself out. So this gospel, it is active. It is intentional. So how do we plan? How do we trust God to accomplish this gospel in our life, to accomplish this vision that we believe he's given us. We, we you know, this is, these are great things, I think. Did you do these, uh, Amber? Okay, it's, it must be it's Becky Gray, I guess. So Becky put these little nice things together, but these four missional banners, that's what we're called to do. So how do we accomplish our vision? We believe as a leadership of our church, we're, we're called to accomplish four primary missions in our church, in and through our church. This is how we ought to accomplish. This is how do we flesh out the gospel in our particular context. So mission number one, look over right over here. We're to glorify God through worship in spirit and in truth. We're to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? Who watched the national championship game? Cody goes, yeah. How many times did you jump up and go, yeah, Travis Henry? How many times? Cody, were you sore the next day because you're moving around? Nah, yeah, whatever. That's glor- we glorified the University of Alabama because we cheered them on to victory. We made their name great through the media, through our household, etc. That's what it means to glorify. Yet God has called us to do something much greater than to glorify 18 to 22-year-olds. He has called us to a new kingdom. He is the magnificent one. He is the one who takes rebellious, self-centered, driven individuals and calls them to a new life and gives them new life. And calls them to a new vision of what he can do. Not to bring death through our own selfishness, but to bring life. That's why we glorify his name. There is no one like him. There is no one like him. 
So when we come before him to worship his name, to make his name great, we do that corporately as we come before him on Sunday mornings. You know, in John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and they're having, she's wanting to have a, uh, a religious argument or discussion. She says, well, you know, our fathers say we ought to worship here, and your fathers say you ought to worship in Jerusalem. And here's Jesus' response to her. He said, in John 4, 24, says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It is not where you worship, but you are to engage the God of all creation, to engage the Father with your heart in spirit and in truth. Not creating a God in your own image and worshiping Him like we often do. God is a, an, a Republican American who grew up in the South. No, He's not. He is radically different than that. He is bigger than that. We worship the God of all creation as He tells us to worship because of, because of what He says about Himself, not what we want to think about Him. That is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And he calls us to do that. He calls us to do that every, every Sunday morning when we gather corporately to praise his name, to go to his word, to communicate his character and his mission for us, and to be empowered by his spirit as we go out these doors. But it's not simply corporate worship. Worship doesn't stop on Sunday morning. We glorify God through worship and spirit and in truth on Monday morning or Monday night whenever you open up your word, either as a family or individually, to have time alone with him, to recalibrate our heart every morning to say, what really does matter? What is truth? What am I going to live for today? Because the world is going to try to press us, mold us, and, and direct us into what its agenda is. And yet God, every single morning, wants us to wake up, recalibrate our heart, to worship him and say, God, this day is yours. So that when I go on I-65 North, I'm no longer on my agenda but your agenda. How do you want to use me today? I'll make your name great when I go to work. And it's how I engage the receptionist as I walk into the office. It's how I engage my neighbor. It's how I engage my coworker. I worship God through my work because that is worship. I, I worship God as I engage my neighbor. That is worship. Guess what? It is worship how I engage my wife or my husband. That is worship. Because that's, that's a life changer. That's a game changer. That's what God calls us to, to worship Him on Sunday morning, on Monday morning, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and everything that we do to, make, to glorify His name, to make His name great, to depend on Him and ask Him to live out His life through us. That's worship. And that's what we're committed to. It's difficult. But that's what He's called us to. And this gospel of grace that we say we believe drives us in that direction. It drives us to do to worship His name. So we are called as a body of believers to glorify God in spirit and in truth.
The second thing we believe what God has called us to, and, and listen, these two missions are interchangeable, all right? To glorify God through, through worship in spirit and in truth and to grow as a community which thinks and lives the gospel of grace. They're interchangeable because if you worship well, guess what? You're going to grasp the gospel because your mind is going to be overwhelmed, your heart will be overwhelmed through the Spirit working in us and through us as we worship His name and make His name great. Then all of a sudden we realize, we understand the extent and the magnitude of the gospel of grace in us. And if we grow as a community which thinks and lives the gospel of grace, guess what? We worship. We want to make His name great because it, it compels us, it controls us that we should no longer live for ourselves and for our own personal agenda, but for him who died for us and gave us new life. So these two foundational missional statements drive us to the Lord, drive us to the Father, and it drives us to each other. It's incredible. So what does it mean to commit to grow, which is, which is the operative word, Right? To grow does not mean stagnant. To grow means it's progressive in nature. We progress. We develop this. We move forward as we grow. And sometimes that's painful. It's hard to grow. I like the garden. And if, you, if, if I, you know, I love on the front end, you plant all your tomatoes and your squash and your okra and all those things. And guess what? And about, if, if I'm planting that by around June, 1st of June, weeds love wet, good soil, and heat. And they sprout up. And then you have to hoe. You have to pull weeds. You have to, you have to fertilize. You have to water. Growth is not easy. And that's why these are interchangeable because we grow as we worship. We grow as we fellowship. We grow as God in the crucible of life and relationships makes us more and more like Christ every day. But that's what he's called us to. And we're not going to do it well unless we think and live the gospel of grace. To think God, God has to take our minds and transform it and how we think and how we, how we view relationships, how we view life. And then it's fleshed out and how we live life. They go together. And so that's what God has called us to do. In Titus 2, 11 through 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So it's, it, think of it like this. The gospel of grace teaches us, trains us, how to say no to ungodliness and its passions. That is our flesh because my flesh wants to get up every morning and I want my own way. I've never had an argument with Jennifer when I got my own way. It's only when I don't get my own way that I want to argue. And yet, godliness of grace trains us to think differently about that. It trains us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to the passions that are so wild like stallions in my heart that want to pull me to self-centered and build Neil's kingdom. And yet that doesn't glorify God and it doesn't help anyone else. God calls me to something greater than that. He calls us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, the world's agenda, and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present generation. Not just when we die and go to heaven, 
He wants us to live out kingdom values every single day, right where we are, to flesh out this gospel of grace in relation to our relationship with God and our relationship with others and what we do every day. One of my favorite passages, and we, man, we, we go to this often because we tend, in my family, I don't know about yours, you may be a lot better than us, but in our family we tend to be selfish. Okay? We tend to have arguments. We tend to get in each other's way and, and violate each other's agendas. That's what we do as Vincent's. And yet this gospel in Colossians 3 guides us to say no to that and to say yes to something greater. In Colossians 3, 12 through 17, and the guy, we, we have to understand who Paul is talking about here. He is not talking about good southern folks from Clanton, Alabama, who all grew up in Clanton, who have kind of relatively the same sort of value system, relatively, other than Auburn, Alabama, relatively on page, the same page with each other. No. He is talking to men and women from vastly different backgrounds. And the first part of Colossians 3 says there's no, there's no distinction between Greece and Jew. They didn't like each other. Circumcised, uncircumcised. They didn't like each other. Barbarian and Scythian. Um, barbarians were foreigners, aliens in the land. They, they called them barbarians because they didn't speak uh, either Greek or Latin. They, sound, they sounded like they were talking Babel, all right? So they called them barbarians. So they were foreigners living in the land. And Scythians were the meanest son of a guns of the hell's angels of that culture. And yet God was bringing them all together into one church. They were all coming to Christ because of this common gospel. And now he's telling them, now you can imagine all the, all the arguments and all the tension that was happening in that group. And yet Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 through 17, Therefore, as God's chosen people, you are no longer of this world, but I've chosen you and you're beloved. You are my loved Chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself, put on compassion. Put on compassion. I'm not very compassionate, and yet God tells me to do something that's not natural to me. He wants me to put on compassion because what? He's compassionate. Put on kindness. Put on humility. My goodness, that's hard. Put on gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against anyone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on this agape love that he's talking about, which binds them all these, all these other character traits because they're not possible unless they're driven by an agape, other-centered, Christ-produced love in us, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it referee in your heart. Let the gospel of Christ referee. Now you can think about it. As we are growing in a community which thinks and lives the gospel, and we have, a, we have something that is contentious between us, which is going to happen, Paul says, when you're in that argument, put on compassion. Wow. That changes things. Put on humility. I don't want to be humble. I want to be proud. I want my way. Put on kindness instead of harshness as I jab at that, those words of mine that know exactly where they're aiming. Put on long-suffering. This gospel in action, that's when it says, when it says, let the love of Christ referee 
in your life and in your relationships. Because if he's refereeing, it's going to cause you to put these other things on. It's going to be a game changer as we relate to one another. And be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. And let the message of Christ or the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Thinking and living the gospel is a game changer. It changes everything. It changes everything. It enables a couple who are running toward divorce because of brokenness, harshness, possibly infidelity, all these things. And yet the gospel of peace can reconcile that and make it right. Guys, there's, there's, there's many families in this church that have been changed by the gospel that may not be with us today were it not for the gospel. It's a game changer. It causes us to relate to my neighbor differently when his dog is barking every night or when they do something that's foolish or I do something that's foolish. The gospel changes us as we relate. It allows us to speak the truth in love. Think about it when he says, and let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. It allows us to go bold, to engage boldly in relationships. Speaking the truth in love. Not out of my personal agenda. We're free from that. If we're walking in the Spirit, controlled by the Gospel, it frees us from wanting to gain our own agenda. And we're able to release that and actually think about maybe what God wants to do here or what is best for this other person. And I can recklessly move forward with God's generosity toward these relationships. It does not mean acquiescing. It does not mean hiding. It does not mean stuffing. It means aggressively going to the root of the issue and dealing with it according to the gospel. It means engaging. It means not just simply having a roommate for a wife or a husband. It means engaging because we're free to engage because of the gospel, because we want to think and live the gospel of peace. And it allows us to lay down our lives for others. Because God fully cares for us. Because our needs are met, we can now turn our attention not from my attention and my needs, which that is our natural default mode, but it allows us to go, God, if this is true, if you have called me to recklessly engage with you and you recklessly engage with me, it diverts my attention from my own agenda. Now I can lay my life down because you're in control. You will meet all of my needs according to your vast resources in heaven. It changes everything. And it leads us to our third mission. So that we are committed as a body of Christ to equip. We're committed to glorify. We're committed to grow. We're committed to equip every member as a minister. We do this through the preaching of the word. On Sunday morning, we do this through the teaching of Sunday in Sunday school. We do this through our growth groups that we admonish one another to live out this gospel. 
We do it through training opportunities, whether it's training each other how to speak the truth in love, to counsel one another. We do it through teaching each other how to share the gospel clearly so that when God gives us those opportunities, we can speak boldly and clearly to, so that we can draw others into the kingdom. It teaches us how to serve one another, to use our gifts. We've done the 210 project here. So how has God uniquely qualified me to give my life away? And let's help equip those folks to do that. That's what we're called to do. Because we are not called, guys, as an, whether it's the leadership of the church or you're brand new to this church, we are not called to sit on a pew. How incredibly meaningless is that? If that is the extent of our gospel, let's do something much bigger than that. God has called us to live and think the gospel, which means I need to lay down my life, which means I need to be equipped to know how to do that, to leverage everything that God has given me, to use that fully on behalf of others. And that's an amazing thing. So that's what God has called us to do. And by equipping uh, every member as a minister, as a minister that enables us to do our fourth mission, which is to give ourselves away in mercy and serving and evangelism and stewardship. As we're controlled by the gospel, as we're controlled by his mission, it allows us to live radically generous lives. To live radically generous lives. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, he says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, will what? He'll lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the paradox of Scripture. Everything in me says, save your life, Neil. Save your life. Save your life. Don't give that away because you might need it some other time. Don't give in to Jennifer because she's gonna, if you give her an inch, she's going to take a mile. Don't do this. Save your life. Everything in me drives me to want to do that. And yet the Father, Christ himself, calls me to don't save your life because in doing that, you'll actually lose it. I was, I was reading, I think it's Numbers 15 or something. When the when the they send, I'm, I'm kind of late. Um, we'll we'll pull this to a close in a second. I was reading Numbers, and and it's talking about the spies going into the land, and then they're coming back to to the people, and they're giving their report. And the spies said, "Yes, the land is full of bounty. It is rich. Everything that Moses told us is true, and yet there are giants in the land." And we were like grasshoppers in our eyes and in their eyes. And two, uh, Caleb and, jo and Jacob, um, Joshua, said, No, if God has called us there, surely we can take it by his power. And yet the other ten persuaded the people to turn their hearts away from God, and they began to rebel in their hearts and say, Has God brought us here to kill us? It's better that we go back to Egypt. That was better than this, to be killed. And it even says in the next chapter, it says, and they were fearful because of their, they, that it might kill their children. If they go into this land, it will threaten their children and their wives. That's a good motive, right? That's something God's called us as men to be 
aware of. And yet, because of that fear, something they desired, they turned their hearts on God. And guess what? He sent them to the wilderness for 40 years. Guess what happened to their children and their wives? They died in the desert. The very thing they longed for, they sabotaged because of their fear and their self-protection. And I believe that's what Jesus is telling us here. If you seek to save your life, self-protection, you're going to lose it. But if you give yourself away for me and the gospel, you will save it. The paradox of life is that as we give ourselves away, God fills us to overfill it, overfull, to overflowing. And the things we long for as we give it away, God fills us and we have more to give. It's an amazing thing what God does. So how do we do this? It's going to look different for every single one of us. There is no cookie-cutter thing in our church. And Ephesians 2.10 says, You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, that he's prepared before him for you to do. You're uniquely qualified to do the works that he has already prepared. So we simply have to walk in them. That's going to look different for every single one of us. For some, it may be like the kings and the ministry of mercy to children, along with the McKinnons, along with the Vincents and others. For the Connors, it may mean we want to begin to counsel young couples to help them walk through the issues that we had as young couples. For others, it may be want to engage in the business community. You know, for others, it's going to be serving their neighbors. For others, it's going to use their skills to build shelters for, for the grace of God ministry. For others, it's going to be let's start celebrate recovery and then give it away when, when someone else can better be, uh, do that or starting the counseling ministry or sharing the gospel. It's going to look different for every single one of us. So what does it look like for you? When God begins to work, it's a beautiful thing. It means a family buys braces for another young child who doesn't have the funds to do it. It means someone providing a vehicle for someone who doesn't have, a, have the money to buy a vehicle. It means someone serving and hiring someone to work in their business because they need a job and they want to see them redeemed. It looks very different. For some, like Rebecca, it means having a, a um, coupon party. Go figure that. But yet, the Smitherman's in this church because Rebecca wanted to have a coupon party. I would never have thought about that. It looks different, does it? But yet, it all goes back because it makes God's name great as we serve. All these fit together. We understand grace. We want to worship. If we worship, it helps us grow in grace, which means that we want to give our lives away, which means we need to be equipped to do that effectively. And as we're doing that, we become a church that's not sterile and stagnant. We become a body, a community of Christ where we begin to seek actively to meet each other's needs. But then we go outside of these walls and we infect just like a disease, a good disease, we impact everybody we come in contact with so that God's name may be made great. Reckless generosity. Reckless generosity. So what does this mean to you? It might mean opportunities, to, you know, seeking opportunities to serve those in our church, whether it's Wednesday night kids, whether it's uh, teaching, whether it's hospitality, engaging uh, with our well groups. It may mean having a neighbor over a meal. It may be 
someone who's sick in your neighborhood, you may want to mow the grass. It may mean being kind to that receptionist who's had a really bad day or made a mistake. It may mean that you babysit for a friend because they're really struggling and they need time away together. It may mean speaking truth with love to someone who's living in lies. It may mean encouraging someone when they're distressed. It may mean giving your money away. It may mean housing someone who needs a place to stay. But it's always active. And it always brings life. It may mean sharing the gospel with a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker. I found that if you add value to someone's life, it will give you opportunities to share the gospel and speak truth. But you have to act first. You have to engage. I used to have a friend of mine who says, there is no impact if there is no contact. So if we, go, if we stay in this building and then we leave and get in our cars and we go to our houses and we stay in our houses, I can guarantee you that we will not have impact. But if we understand the mighty name of our God and understand his grace toward us, then we give our lives away and your life will be more full than you could ever try to imagine yourself or even give you a greater life. And it may be a life of suffering. I want to be careful. God does not guarantee us a safe life. He guarantees us a full life. It's never safe. Never safe. Yet it's full. Now closing this, in Isaiah 58, and we've, we've said this over and over again in this church. Isaiah 58 says, Is not this kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. And if you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday because of him. And the Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. And he will strengthen your frame. And you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of broken walls and restorer of the streets. May that be true of our church. May that be true of our families. That in your street, you would be like a well-watered garden that will provide nourishment for all those around you. When you go into your cubicle at work, that you would be like a bright sunshine. That as you go to the supermarket, that you would bring life. So that his name may be made great. So that our deepest longings would be fully satisfied in Christ. What a great vision that is. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
this vision, these missions that you've given us. It is by your generous heart that you have even called us to be beloved ones and chosen ones. And yet, Father, it's so difficult for us. I pray that we would have generous hearts like you toward our spouses, toward our children, toward our neighbors and co-workers and toward each other. May your name be made great. May your light shine through this church in a dark and sun-scorched land. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand.